Welcome to Help from Future Self. Hey, what's happening, Archons? Welcome to another episode of Help from Future Self. It's the conversational Keyforge podcast by and for Keyforge friends. My name is Scuzzy Gruen. My mom calls me Alex, and I am joined this week, as with every week, by the guy who makes it all happen. It's Coach Boulevard Paper Fight. What's happening, Blake? Hey, man. How's it going? Good, good. Been playing some Keyforge, been getting psyched up for today's episode, which I am very, very excited for. Since basically the moment you pitched this topic, I've been thinking hard about it and playing decks uh, that I knew would give me a little more insight into it. Why don't you, why don't you tell the folks what your pitch for this was? Yeah, so I wanted to talk about basically how to play to the strength of your deck. And sometimes that has multiple layers to it because it's not just like the actual strength of your deck. Sometimes it comes down to as well, like the sequencing of your cards for for like the maximum effect, because there's a there's a few levels to that concept. And sometimes in a game like Keyforge, where there is a high odds chance to it, because you're playing one house at a time, which then if you keep seeing the same house over and over again, you're going to increase your odds of the next houses coming. It creates an interesting proposition as the games go on. So that's one thing that I found uh, very interesting. But uh, we got a little bit of news before we jump right into this, don't we, Alex? Yes, indeed. Big shout out to our buddy Zach Armstrong uh, from Call of Discovery, who hit us up with a little bit of uh, news on the WhatsApp. He passed along a tweet that was posted by Lady Caffeina. She's one of the folks behind uh, our. And it comes from uh, Andy Ming, someone from overseas who uh, is very credible in the Keyforge news. Mm -hmm. So shout outs to both of them. Yeah, indeed. And it is the prize wall list for an upcoming grand championship in Shanghai. So a lot of prizes that we're familiar with and a lot of the pricing for shards that we're familiar with, all the stuff that you would expect to see. So metal keys, 70, play mats, 70. Uh, you know, if you want decks, they're 80, which I, seems very strange to me considering a playmat is 70. But, you know, maybe maybe pricing is different uh, in Shanghai. Um, a few other items that we haven't seen on prize walls before, like a lot of the uh, the branded Keyforge uh, deck boxes and things like that. But the item that draws the eye the most, Blake, is down on the bottom right, the highest ticket item there, with the exception of one other item that costs the same, which is a keyboard of all things. Very strange. Um, <laughs> considering the fact that there's no official Keyforge client right now, um, is 12 decks that, per the translation of the text on uh, the prize wall, uh, will have your name on it for 2,000 shards. So it's essentially a display. Yeah. Wow. Pretty amazing stuff. 2,000 shards is so many shards. Like, yeah, you stop to that's think about it. Amount. Um, if a playmat is 70, this is the equivalent of 30 playmats. And who needs 30 playmats? Well, certainly not <laughs> I. Although, you know, there's certain people out there in the community who have like 30 playmats, and you're always just like, what are you, what are you doing with all those playmats? But yeah, just it's, it's a cool idea for a prize. And I think it certainly is the kind of prize that really does excite me a lot more than a lot of the other high ticket items that they've had in the past. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, for the longest time, the biggest ticket item was that gaming chair, which to me is like, I, if I want an office chair, I'm just going to buy an office chair. Like the idea of a branded Keyforge chair means you know, very little to me, but this would be something that seems like it would be worth spending the shards on if you had 2,000 shards. Chances of you getting that just by spending money are, you know, even for people like us who spend money on Keyforge, it's going to take a while to get there just on opening decks. This is a you play in a lot of tournaments and you win a lot of shards kind of prize. Which is something that's not really happening right now, so that's it's also very interesting. 
with the exception of this grand championship in Shanghai, do we even know when the date for that is? Uh, no, I have no idea. Yeah, yeah. It might be like a theoretical future date or something else. Um, would you be excited to see this come to the prize wall in North America? 100%. I mean, but if you think about all the amount, I think that this is probably like maybe 1% of the Keyforge population would be able to get this based mm-hmm. on the shard count, especially with a lack of tournaments, unless they're planning on having this be a evergreen thing. And then it creates a necessity to maybe save up more so than people have done in the past. And you got to wonder, is that going to make it so people are buying less things off the wall? Who knows, right? But it's uh, it's it's definitely really up there. I mean, even looking at my shards, I think I have I have a significant amount, not as much as others. But wasn't the chair at the thousand shard mark? Yeah, yeah. So this is and two this is, chairs. Yeah, so there you go. So that's uh, that's very interesting. And it'll be curious to see how this goes. They may realize that maybe it is priced so high, so it is very unobtainable but it is something to strive for maybe that is part of the goal so that the the cost of printing or whatever it is is not that easy and this creates the ability to make this actually happen because they're not having to print uh, hundreds and hundreds of them who knows Mm-hmm, totally. I, I find some of the pricing on some of the new items that are on that prize wall, or at least that are on the prize wall for this market, very strange. Like, did you notice that the deluxe mass mutation box, or is that a mass mutation box, or is that a world's? No, it's a world's collide box. Is two hundred and forty shards for two decks, essentially? Yeah, essentially for two decks and some stickers, like the equivalent of. I keep going back to playmat, but because to me, playmat is almost like your base level of currency. Like, mm-hmm. I know what a playmat is worth. I know what it costs in a store. And I know what I'm willing to pay for it. And 70 shards is like such a nice, easy number to work with. So, yeah. like, a deluxe box is uh, three playmats plus. Yeah, it's, I don't know. We'll see. This could be a test for all you know. This is just a test to see. Uh, are things not moving? It's a market that they probably haven't done much. I mean, the fact that they're having a prize wall or grand championship, which I was told is never the idea because prize walls are only happening at Vault Tours maybe says something into this as well. Yeah, absolutely. I'll be interested. Like, I I, I really do want to know, you know, just sort of what the, 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 the actual, whether or not this is just a regional thing or whether this is going to be going elsewhere um, and become a sort of a broader thing in the Keyforge world. But uh, I guess we will find that out with time when organized play comes back, when that happens. And uh, I, you notice that I say when and not if. Um, I feel f- uh, strongly, strongly that we're going to uh, get back to uh, uh, organized play. I didn't mention this to you uh, before the cast, Blake, but I'm going to throw it out at you. Um, did you watch the most recent Crucible cast? No, I didn't. I just heard it was extremely disappointing. Yeah, it was kind of like a, I don't think it was deliberately um, insulting as some people uh, theorized on Reddit, but their whole thing of like, we're going to talk about how you can play online and then not acknowledging the crucible and talking about it from the perspective of like, but you know, having a camera set up so that you could play, you know, with a camera over your, uh, 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 your play mat and sort of like do it that way. Is that really how they, they pitched yeah, it? Yeah. Yeah. That's at least from what I gather, uh, you know, so are we holding, are they saying we're holding chain bounds this way now? No, <laughs> like the whole thing about it was just, I think that they, they wanted to try it. It almost seems to me like somebody wanted to, them to, you know, 
all right, well, we can't officially acknowledge the Crucible, but, the, you know, people want to know how they can play Keyforge right now when there's no actual play going on and it's dangerous, you know, in a lot of places to do so due to the pandemic. Can you guys come up with something to present? And this is what they came up with. And it's a, it's a bad solution. And it also, like, to people who are have been expecting and praying for that real official online client really did leave a bad taste in people's mouths. Yeah, I, I, I saw that there was a crucible cast and people were not happy. That's what I saw. So we'll, we'll see what happens. Um, in all honesty, I, I am a little bit worried mm-hmm. about everything. I think there's like us as a community are, are the only ones keeping the game going. FFG is doing the absolute bare minimum. I understand it's a trying time, but they, they really should step it up a little bit because I think the community can only carry this for so long before it becomes to a point where, uh, a, a segment of the population of Keyforge players will start waning away. I even know heard some other people saying they're like someone I was trying to buy a deck from said he he was willing to sell the deck and he was on the fence about it before strictly because he wants to get more into board games now because you don't need as much, you know, infrastructure behind it. So that's an interesting yeah. thing. I mean, the other thing is that maybe they can afford to let the game lie fallow during the period of the pandemic and then try and bring it back huge at a later point maybe that's their whole strategy i think that would be mm-hmm. a poor idea but you know i also don't run a big international games company so maybe they know something i don't yeah fair enough let's get into today's topic playing out your cards for maximum value how to get the most out of your deck blake i have one thought that i wanted to start things off with and i know it's something that you agree with um the knowledge that we're going to impart here is, of course, based on our own experiences, and our own experiences are always predicated on the idea of playing your decks, getting to know your decks, getting to know them intimately, playing them a lot of times, playing them a lot against a lot of different opponents and a lot of different styles of deck. You will never understand how to play your deck optimally until you've played it a lot Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's that, the, you know, no, no number will ever replace that experience, no rubric for decorating. And we've seen a lot of them come and go over the course of the last two years, you know, no, no SAS score, no AERC will ever replace the experience of just understanding what your deck goes. Sometimes I like to say the way a deck pulls. And once mm-hmm. you start to understand that, that's when you can start applying, I think, the sorts of things that Blake and I are going to be talking about today. Yeah, 100%. So like as I mentioned earlier about knowing and identifying like what your deck does. Mm-hmm. The key the key part is like what Alex said, it's going to take through playing because the the first time you're getting to know your deck, obviously doing the route of whatever you have the most of and just playing those out is going to give you an idea, but sometimes if you take that route and you keep that philosophy, you're going to actually get yourself to a place that has almost it's like the law of diminishing returns. Because if you keep playing with that mentality of whatever you have the most of and you're not identifying the sequence of cards or the strengths of the deck that come together, you're going to start missing out because there are going to come times when you realize you should be holding this this house even though you have three of that one card and then you have two of another. Sometimes it's better to just allow those other two cards to be played and hold the three and hope another piece of the puzzle comes, especially if you have a board that can also support that that house of uh, lesser cards in hand. I, I have noticed that that is a great way of seeing your deck and just how the cards come. 
But like I said, there's a law of diminishing returns. If you just keep doing that when you're getting to your, your past your 10th game and into your 20th, if you haven't seen what's happening yet and you're in that 10 to 20 range of plays, you're going to really not realize maybe one of the strengths of the deck. So you got to notice when the cards start coming together, what they're doing, and start actively trying to make that happen and find other things that support whatever that combo or whatever that strength of that house is that mm-hmm. could occur. Yeah, I've got a great example of that with one of my most played, no, definitely my most played mass mutation deck. Um, It is a uh, Logos, Shadows, and what's the other house? Oh my goodness, I can't even believe I can't think of this right now. Dis, Dis. Logos, uh, Shadows, Disc deck. Um, It's got a lot of draw, which is great, but it's also like got a Shadow Suite that is pretty workable. But one of its big things is they got a Heist Knight in it. Um, Heist Knight is a card that basically says for every thief creature, it's an alpha card, so you got to play at the beginning of your turn. Um, and it says for every thief creature that you have on the table, you can steal one from your opponent. So one of the things that I learned about it quickly, this deck specifically, was that it's not super strong on amber control. It doesn't have a ton of amber control. It has enough if you know how to play it. But one of the things that I had to learn very early on was that if I took the uh, strategy of just always playing out the maximum number of cards from my hand, I would too often be placing myself in a scenario where I had no amber control when I actually needed it. I needed to actually play the deck in such a way that when the moment comes where I need to be able to make a big steal to keep an opponent off of a key, that Heist Knight is available to me either through archiving or through having gotten it into my hand through a large amount of card draw and logos and then having being able to put that out. And I only learned that by playing that deck like 15, 20 times. And all the losses that I noticed were almost always because I didn't have that Amber control when I needed it. And what I started to discover was, okay, well, You know, if I'm looking at this from the perspective of I need to have this available to me, how are the ways that I can play this deck to make sure that I have it when I need it? Mm Hmm. Yeah, that's a very good point. Yeah, so I I think that's sort of one of the the key things that you can take away from like your your 20 to 30 uh, and, you know, 30 plus games is – Really understanding your deck's weaknesses is, I think, one of the keys to understanding how to play the deck the deck to maximum advantage. Knowing, all right, uh, this deck is weak on board control. This deck is weak on amber control. Um, this deck is weak on uh, uh, artifact control. It's always about control, Blake. You ever notice that? Yeah, it's true. Yeah. yeah. And uh, what's interesting about what you said as well is with all those things, knowing those weaknesses, is it brings the term patience into mind. Mm. Because sometimes when you have less cards that can do the things that may be necessary to swing the game, if you get that at the wrong time, sometimes if you there's certain instances obviously where this is not going to ring true. But if you know you have a card that if you play it now, you've your opponent knows you only have it, you literally open the floodgates for them to go one way or the other, whether it's to flood the board, to flood Ember, whatever that may be that they can take advantage of knowing that that threat no longer exists. You have to understand whether maybe it's worthwhile chaining yourself and holding it so that you can swing the game back in your favor or can your deck truly cycle fast enough to get it back shuffled in and then you have the odds of drawing it again like there's so many things that you kind of need to really just be very careful about what's happening and you can't really go off the the rails with everything it's it's really tricky and challenging when you have to play the patience game and that patience game falls to other things too like if if you have a combo or or a house like i i feel like untamed for some reason really brings the patience 
point home, especially like Kodan team, when you have those hunting witches into key charges and things like that with your dust pixies and all those sort of things, you kind of have to play that waiting game and allow that untamed to start filling up your hand or get into the archives in some way. So then you can just like, boom, just go out and just come out of nowhere and forge that key. And I've always found that that is something that Untamed has is you you have to be patient with an Untamed suite sometimes to really get the maximum effect. Mm-hmm. Especially back when Full Moon was was a hot card that was in every deck. You know, yeah. if you're playing that for one amber, it's not great. If you're playing it for three amber, half a key, that's that's a lot better. Sometimes you're playing it for five or six amber if you can set things up correctly. Mm-hmm. Yeah, another another card. Um, I feel like Arise and also Grim Reminder. Those two cards. One obviously the classic Coda, and then the new one from Mass Mutations are you get to put a house into your archive um, for Grim Reminder, and then for Arise you get to put it back into your hand. So that's another thing where sometimes you want to be patient and take the right moment to pull that back. I like Grim Reminder. I think almost more than Arise in a way because uh, with Arise you always wanted to call Dis just because you could use it right away. But mm-hmm. I like the Grim Reminder because I can choose one of my other houses that are really strong and then save it for the future turn, get to refill my hand, and then potentially have like a really massive turn. Mm-hmm. So I really like Grim Reminder for for that aspect. Yeah, Grim Reminder library card, that's that's hot. <laughs> yeah, it can be really <laughs> disgusting. So, um, or sorry, go, uh, I did want to bring up a quick point here related to one of the things that you just said before you move mm-hmm. on to your next one, which is the... Part of knowing your own deck really well is knowing what to look for in your opponent's deck, um, knowing what the things that will cripple your deck are. Um, And this is a lesson that I think was recently taught to me by watching the way that people play Eden's Jar. Eden's Jar is, of course, the artifact that makes you unable to play a card unless you get rid of Eden's Jar. Um, And I find that a lot of the players who play it effectively are the ones who are very good at scanning your deck list and saying, Okay, well, clearly this guy's playing Dav. I'm going to make it so we can't put out uh, a Dark Amber Vault. Or this uh, person uh, has a Stirring Grave that he's going to use to bring back a bunch of creatures at some point. I'm going to use this to stop Stirring Grave. Or, you know, any other card you can think like that. And you can really tell, I think, the caliber of a player sometimes by how they play Eaton's Jar because it really does point out how well they analyze your deck. And the lesson that I take away from that is I look at my opponent's deck and I think about the idea of, all right, if I am looking for the card that is really going to screw me, which card out of all of these is it going to be? Which combination of cards? Is it going to be this? Is it going to be this? Is it going to be this thing that's going to steal a bunch of amber from me? Is it going to be this card that's going to wipe out my board? And that gives you an idea of how to play your deck around what they have that could potentially defeat it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, that's that's a very good point. Uh, I like that one a lot. There's um. So the, the next thing I was going to move on to from this is is the house combo idea and um what i mean by that is the combination of cards that exist within your house that really supports your strength of play so you need to be aware of what do you want to come together i learned this lesson um very slowly but to great effect with a worlds collide deck i had where i i just wasn't winning with the deck and then when i discovered it was bringing the saurian house creatures together and just basically putting them on the board and establishing a really solid, strong board of dinos mm-hmm. where I could call Sorin over and over again and abuse that. It made me realize that once I figured out how to get those together and then 
put them on the board and start really going to town, it swung all my games. And Alex, I played this deck against you as when we were playing in the league. And I don't know if you remember, it had that Spartasaurus and the Shrix and, and mm-hmm. I was able I to ward. That. And the deck just did crazy things, but it relied on me recognizing that I needed to get my dinosaurs out together and then start just controlling the board because you couldn't put things down. I could use my Spartasaurus to start wiping the board and it just became very tricky to play against. But it took me for like a very long time, like actually 10 games before I recognized I had to not not finish with use if I was getting my dinosaurs early to get them to be safe for later and then have that big turn that I recognize. And as soon as I did that, it, it always swung in my favor of the game. So you have to know these house combos. And as a result, there's also being aware of the the house count in your deck. Mm-hmm. So this is something I, I find lately I've been spending a lot more attention on is looking at the cards that exist with each house. What have I played? What's the number I've played? What's going to be left? Like what's the, the, I guess the ratio or the probability I'm drawing more of one house. So it makes me actually sometimes call a different house. It's like, well, I have quite a few here, but I would like a couple more. And I think if I call this house, cause I've already played a ton of these cards, I'm more likely at the end of this turn to draw into this house I haven't really played yet and have a really powerful turn. And I've been paying much more attention to that lately. Yeah, I, I I have decks that I play certain ways and I play against a lot of people certain ways where you never, and this is always a thing I watch out for now, in a game, if my opponent is never calling a certain house, I mm-hmm. start thinking real hard about what's in that house and why they aren't playing them at all. Maybe it's because they got a good engine going with another house on the board that I haven't dealt with. Mm-hmm. Maybe it's because it's more of a late game kind of like put the cap on it kind of house. Mm-hmm. But I think it's important to understand when you're playing a deck specifically, um, do I want to um, get all of my dinos out on the board early and then start working around with some of my other stuff? Or uh, Shadows is the classic example, right? Do I want to burn Shadows cards early? No, you want to burn Shadows cards later when their steel and other like ways of messing around with your opponent are at their most valuable. It's important not to hold on to those for too long, and it's especially important not to chain yourself too hard if you've got a handful of Shadows cards, you know, only playing like one other house, one card of one other house, and mm-hmm. not cycling your deck very fast. But, you know, there are those decks and you'll find them as you play more decks where it's very feasible for you to either through a combination of card draw and archiving, always be playing other houses and saving up for that big turn for one specific uh, house. And I think that that's certainly a thing that you're going to notice with certain decks that you play and something to keep in mind. Yeah, for sure. No, that's that's a very good point. And I guess uh, speaking of, you know, getting those early shadows cards that you don't want, I think understanding when and why you should mulligan is a very, very important part of knowing how to get the most out of your deck. And I have a couple theories on on why you should be mulliganing or not mulliganing actually around this. So the first thing I think is, um, uh, uh, to be honest, a lot of this research has come from me playing my different DAV decks because it's, it's made me really realize I want mutants, I want to get DAV, and those are two things that exist separately within the deck. So one, I'm looking for a specific card, and then two, I'm looking for a trait of creatures uh, within a house that has the most, that will take advantage of the DAV engine. But I realize that it's actually a principle that can be applied to a lot of different things. So one thing is, you could always say, oh, you got a hard mulligan for this one card. And I actually stopped doing that. 
The reason being was I noticed that if you're mulliganing for one card, but your hand is pretty good, you could actually put yourself in a worse position because you're just playing the odds game of potentially drawing that. Now, if you don't draw it, you could have a really bad hand. But let's say you opened up with with a three three one, for example, and you're on the you're going first. I sometimes actually prefer to do this of keep the house, or especially if it's like a four two one, that's even better. Because the reason why I like that so much is because then you're playing out four cards of a house, especially if it's not the house you're looking to take advantage of. You're actually increasing the odds of drawing other things. So I think that's a really important thing to keep in mind when you're when you're choosing to mulligan or not. Sometimes dumping cards from a house that's not going to suit what your deck wants to do can be very advantageous early on because it's just going to create your ability to go through your deck faster and cycle into other things much more strong. I love that you brought that up because in all three of my favorite decks, if I was to like put a gun to my head and say, what are your three favorite decks? These are the three I would pick. There is a house that I love to lead with and I love to lead with it because it gets stuff out of my hand and helps me cycle into other stuff that is more useful in later and mid game. So um, for example, in uh, my favorite Coda deck, um, it's Dis. Discards are great for me very early on in that deck because I'm just getting them out of the way so that I can get my big untamed bursts lined up and I can get my big shadows amber control lined up. Um, and so the way that uh, when I pull a hand that starts in that uh, with that deck with like three or four disc uh, cards, I always keep it. I never throw it back because the value of just getting those out, getting them on the board and whatever happens happens is so huge to me because I know it's going to mean hotter hands later on as time goes by. Mhm. Yeah, no, that's uh that's very that's exactly what it is and it's it's great and I think sometimes people go, "Oh, these cards suck right now, so I'm going to mulligan." And I don't think you can always do that or you're like, "Oh, I want to get this card, so I'm going to mulligan," but I think knowing that you can go through things faster is is uh, really important. Uh, one thing I absolutely love bec- that only exists in Mass Mutation is when you get a draw pip on a card you're going to play first turn because then you're going to draw a card. Like You can only play one card and you're not going to draw. So if you haven't Mulligan, for example, so you get to draw an extra card with it. And I absolutely love that. Like Subject Kirby with a draw pip turn one and you get to play a creature. Like Sometimes things like that are just so neat in this set. So I, I really appreciate the draw pips on mass mutation like if you can play a cumex with a drop hip turn one like that is an insane first turn play i think for cycling mm-hmm. yeah i mean this is the, the set where we really have seen b- both in good and bad ways the value of some of our classic keyforge concepts uh you know card draw is king and the best da- decks are the ones that can take the most advantage of it and we're talking about things like dav things with lots of uh drop hips so you got three infomorphs that's probably going to be a high draw deck with a lot of efficiency. Um, mm-hmm. We're also seeing, of course, um, the lack of uh, big big scaling amber control, which is, I think, one of the set's biggest weaknesses, especially when you go yeah. back and play it against older sets. But we're not here to discuss that really today. Um, I think finally, one of the concepts that I really wanted to talk about, I'm glad you brought up the mulligan thing. Like we could do a whole episode probably just talking about when to mulligan or why yeah. we mulligan or why not to mulligan um, because there's lots of great wisdom out there about that topic and yet sometimes you always go against that wisdom because it doesn't make sense for the deck which leads me to the point that i wanted to make as sort of my final my final thing to bring up here which is that 
there's lots of good advice and there's lots of great things that you can generally apply across uh, your understanding of Keyforge. But playing a deck will help you to understand when that wisdom does not apply. There are a lot of decks that are counter to common Keyforge wisdom because of the specific way they play. And by playing them, you will get to understand that. You and I have seen decks that have weird engines, things that operate in such ways that you would never expect it. And yet once you see it playing, like I remember when we played Austin at um, the prime championship way back uh, at the dawn of time earlier this year, it was like February or something like that. <laughs> January. Was it last year? I don't remember. No, um, it was. It was February 2020. Oh 2020, God. the year that never ends. It feels like it was 100 years ago, Blake. Um, <laughs> but uh, Austin had an AOA deck that he was playing in that that tournament that, like, I couldn't even describe to you how its engine worked. But basically, he kept building out his board in such a way that it was very difficult to deal with. And it crippled you from being able to do other stuff with it, short of just like dropping multiple board clears one after the other. And so it was this thing where he wasn't playing it in an intuitive way. And because that was an adaptive tournament, he'd hand it to somebody else. And then he would just walk all over them because they didn't understand how to play this counterintuitive deck in the way that it would be successful. And so that was kind of a lesson to me at that time, which was a deck doesn't always conform to standard Keyforge wisdom. And oftentimes its true secrets are only unveiled by you playing it a bunch of times, noticing weird ways that it combos and then really internalizing them into your style of play with it. It's a big investment to get to the point where you can do that. But with your best and most, uh, you know, sort of competitive decks i think it's definitely worth that investment yeah for sure all right cannot end an episode of help from future self without the titular segment this one's called help from future self blake have you got one for us this week i do yeah so upon testing for a deck that i was wanting to buy it was it really made me think about some stuff that uh this is this is kind of a weird help from future self Mm mm-hmm but it made me recognize something that I don't know. I don't know how to quite describe it, but it has to do with the state of the game right now is I was looking to spend a couple hundred dollars on a new DAV deck and I had some, my disposable income for it uh, got reduced due to some car things that need to be dealt with. And when I went to purchase it, I suddenly got cold feet because I thought about spending money on a deck like this. And it made me start questioning, like, why would I spend money on something when I don't get to play it? And by the time, like, we do get tournaments where this can be played, like, it's great that we have these online tournaments, but it's not the same for me as, like, an, an IRL tournament, like, spending, investing in a deck. And it made me realize that by the time we're probably going to get to do that, we're going to have a new set. Will the potency of this concept still ring true? Will it be something new that's hot? And all these things started going through my mind, and it made me just start to question should I be spending this money on a deck like this? And mm-hmm. it was a very new concept for me to think this way and reevaluate how I'm processing Keyforge. And I think part of this comes with, you know, we do have a lot of decks and we have decks we like to play and decks that we probably don't play enough that we like to play. So why acquire a new deck for that reason? And it just was a thing that made me realize that my future self kind of was like, you know what, it's time to take a beat right now spend some time with things that you already have, get to know them a little bit better. Like we talked about today is identifying this, the strength of your deck. It is fun, you know, discovering that new hotness, cracking new decks. But I think we're in a time right now where 
taking a step back and appreciating what you currently have and really taking the time to dive deep with those might be the right course of action, especially going back and visiting things that you haven't seen for a few months. I know Dan and I have been doing that a little bit here and there when we've been playing our games. We'll go visit something old and he's been doing it especially. And it's it's really fun because now that we have a new set in the mix, it adds new life to the way you play your old decks. So you don't always have to get something new and shiny. It's always good to just go visit the classics and stuff that you haven't seen in a while and maybe get yourself a little bit more familiar with it. There's also the fact that you as a player will have grown since you last played it. So you're going to actually approach that deck differently no matter what. Love it. Love it. Lessons that everybody can apply, especially those of us like you and I, who I think sometimes need a little reminder that uh, it's not always about the new hotness. And mm-hmm. sometimes it's about uh, l- spending a little time with those underloved classics. You can yeah. find us on Twitter at HFFS Podcast. You can find me at Scuzzy Gruen on Twitter, on Instagram, and on The Crucible. Mostly just on The Crucible these days, but uh, I do pop my head in those other spots. Where can they find you, Blake? And what have you got going on? I'm starting up my uh, my stuff again this week. I appreciate everyone who tuned into my stream on Tuesday. And uh, you can always find me on Twitter at Boulevard Paper Fight. And of course, on my YouTube. I know it's been a little bit stale as of late, but uh, moving does tend to take up your time quite a bit. So uh, I'm hoping now that I'm getting settled, I'll be able to kick that back into full swing in the coming weeks. Right on, right on. Looking forward to seeing what you have going on there. All right, we got to get out of here. Uh, We will be back next week with yet another episode of Help from Future Self. Until then, thanks for listening and stay forward.